the final setting of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale occurs well into the future at a symposium of historians examining the handmaid era. Your podcaster expects a similar future gathering of sober scholars evaluating the time of COVID. They'll likely conclude it was an economic and political bankruptcy, a mathematical and moral fiasco. Still, it wasn't all bad, and this podcaster imagines that, sitting at the back of the room, a lowly assistant will indecorously interrupt proceedings with, at least the funny flu allowed a cannonball run of the ages, and before security could be called to escort this violator of stodgy proceedings out of the banquet room, the iconoclast would blithely explain that the cannonball is an unofficial, entirely illegal 2,800 mile or 4,500 kilometers, but who knows with inflation these days. Car race from New York City's Red Ball Garage to the Portofino Hotel in Los Angeles. That the pre-Rona record was 27 hours, 25 minutes. That with Captain Tripp's clearing the road of Grandma's Convoy, Smokey, Panda, and the Fuzz, the new record was set at an eyelid peeling 25 hours, 55 minutes, and that two general documentaries were already released on this subject, including The Cannonball Run 2, which is in your podcaster's sincere, very unprofessional opinion, the best documentary ensemble cast ever, including stars Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, Dean Martin, Sam Davis Jr., Shirley MacLaine, Frank Sinatra, Mary Lou Henner, Aristoteles Savalas, Catherine Bach, Susan Anton, and Jackie Chan, among others. And it is the idea of the ensemble cast that makes this 22nd episode of Making Sense a special one. We try to answer three questions. Which paradigm do central banks inhabit? Was Aristotle an idiot? Are low rates stimulative? In trying to answer them, we turn to Jeff Snyder, but also Aristotle himself, and Ben Bernanke, Benoit Mandelbrot, The Bride, Christopher Nolan, The Coen Brothers, Cormac McCarthy, Eugene Fama, Henry Poincare, Hugh Hendry, Janet Yellen, Jay Powell, Jeb Henserling, Joe Rogan, The Joker, Keith McCullough, Louise Bachelier, Milton Friedman, Paul Samuelson, and In today's show, you're going to learn about the relationship between Aristotle and the next economic boom, mathematics and pornography, central banks, and the Boston phone book. Remember, this show is all about helping you learn how the wholesale creation and destruction of money affects your finances, your economics, our politics, our society. This is Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production my name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Emil. We've got a great show. I am super excited about today's show. We're going to go over three and a half articles, four articles, three episodes, three parts. And we're going to start off with a blog post that you posted to the Alhambra Investments website on August 7th. And it is currently the leader in the clubhouse for longest title of your career. Here it is. Quote, was Aristotle an idiot? Back, welcome back to August 9th. That answer to that question, the key to the next golden age. Jeff, why did you use 105 letters, numbers, spaces, syntax to describe 
a 12 basis point move in an interest rate 13 years ago. Yeah, it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? There's a, there's a little uh, obvious incongruity with the, the, the amount of attention and the amount of uh, emphasis that we put on both that, that uh, event and, as well as what we think about it. Really what we're talking about here is August 9th for, for us around uh, Eurodollar University is an important event because that's the day when the first global financial crisis became a global financial crisis. So it's, for us, it's, 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 it's the moment that everything changed in the system. From that point on, as, as I think we, we, we generally view, there was really no going backward from that one. Whatever was going to happen was going to happen. You know, Ben Bernanke was kind of screwed after that point because the system really did break down. Yeah, we talked about it. We had a, at the end of episode 21, part three, we talked about the anniversary a little bit. And uh, we didn't go into the nitty-gritty details, but we got some requests to do a show one day about that. And I, and I think you did something on that with uh, Eric Townsend at Macro Voices. So before we get to it, someday in the future, I'm sure we will do it. If anyone's interested about learning about the nitty-gritty details of that day, uh, go to Macro Voices, Eurodollar University with Eric Townsend and Jeff Snyder. One of the things that stood out that you write about in your article that you make note is that a pretty remarkable thing happened that day. The offshore rate LIBOR for dollars went up, signaling very enthusiastic demand for dollars. Meanwhile, the onshore rate for dollars in the United States, federal funds went down, signaling very little interest in dollars. And this was the, the making of obvious, the making clear that there was a geographic break taking place. Yeah, it was the, it was the, the idea that the euro dollar system, the global reserve currency, which isn't really that necessarily the dollar, but this bank-centered offshore um, currency system, that's where the focus of this growing global financial crisis actually was. It wasn't Wall Street. It was Lombard Street. It was the main euro dollar avenues in London and the Cayman Islands where you are, Emil. All of these offshore banks that trade and redistribute these bank liabilities that they call dollars, what we saw on August 9th right away was something is wrong in that part of the system. And even when you go back and look at how the Federal Reserve treated that early, the early days of the crisis, they weren't really sure what was going on either. They could see that LIBOR was going up. And a lot of discussion took place in the, in the um, FOMC meetings was about whether or not that was even the Fed's problem. Was that something the Bank of England should have taken care of because it was London dollar trading? And so that was, you know, again, the, the, the incongruity between what was really taking place and how we're supposed to understand what was taking place under the you know, worldview and interpretation, rules of interpretation that had developed over the previous decades. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't exactly the way it was supposed to happen. All right. So the title of your article is, it, it involves Aristotle right from the beginning, philosopher. I'm going to quote a philosopher, a modern day philosopher, and then we're going to work backwards via another philosopher in between. And then we're just going to talk about paradigms and whether or not Aristotle was an idiot. So Christopher Nolan, 2008, The Dark Knight, the Joker is speaking to Two-Face in the hospital. And he says, you know what I've noticed? Nobody gets upset when everything goes according to plan, even if the plan is horrifying. And Jeff, I hear an echo of that statement in your article when you say, quote, progress is not linear. Rather, it quite often goes for a very long time 
in a settled state, no matter how unsettlingly wrong that state. What and who are you referring to here? Well, I like the fact that you're, I think, comparing me to the Joker. So, I mean, that, that, that's already a that's great right. start. But no, what we're really saying here is that we like the fact that things seem to be predictable, that we understand, we like to believe or at least fool ourselves into believing that we understand enough about the world that we can live in it relatively risk-free, relatively pain-free, that we understand enough about what is really a very, very complex system that we don't have to worry about how complex and how you know, oftentimes horrifying it can be. So long as we think that we're in this bubble where we understand everything, we're okay living in the bubble, even though a lot of times we can see how, yeah, it's not really going the way we, we thought it would, but we, at least we think we, it's going that way. So there must be something evolutionary in humans where we, we, we really go into these periods of self-delusion. And it takes a lot for us to get out of them. Paradigm shift, perhaps? Who was talking? And you, in the article, you say that we didn't really experience a paradigm shift on August 9th. And I'm guilty of saying it often, that it was a paradigm shift. Let's talk a little bit about Kuhn and what he thought of Aristotle. Yeah, I think, you know, I do the same thing. I, to me, I always say August 9th was a paradigm shift. But in the, in, the, in the original meaning of the word paradigm shift and how it came about and how it relates to Aristotle, it wasn't. And it explains why things are the way they are. One of the things I hear about a lot, and I know you hear about it too, Emil, is people say, well, no, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, Jay Powell, Mario Draghi, Chris, I mean, all these central bankers, they can't be this incompetent. They just can't be. They can't be idiots. And therefore... A lot of people are left to believe, well, because they're, 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 they perform so poorly at their job, it must be because they're doing it on purpose. Like they're, you know, they're crashing the system for their Wall Street masters. I mean, you hear that a lot. There's some insidious plot because these people just can't be that incompetent. But the guy who invented the term or coined the term paradigm shift, Dr. Thomas Kuhn, what he did was he went back and looked at Aristotle, who is, you know, someone who's lionized in the Western canon as a very smart man and one of the people who brought about the entire Western frame of reference in scientific study. And what he wanted to know was, you know, did Aristotle really contribute a lot to the scientific breakthroughs that took place in the 17th, 16th and 17th centuries? And what he found out was, man, Aristotle looks like an idiot. Pretty much everything he wrote where it came to physics and science and natural sciences was not just wrong. It was riddled with logical errors and all sorts of, of mistakes that you would think that a child had written it. From our modern perspective, that's what it really looked like. It looked like that you know, Aristotle was an idiot, but we know he wasn't an idiot. What happened was he lived in a different paradigm. He lived in a different world where they interpreted the world around them very differently. Their frame of reference was, was primitive, and it was so different from the modern world. That's the only conclusion a modern person can come to is that you know, it looks like Aristotle was an idiot. He wasn't. He was a very highly educated, smart man, but within his own paradigm. And so that applies, I believe, to the modern day economics. When you look at Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, and Jay Powell, they look like idiots, but they're, you know, inside their own paradigm thinking, we've got this covered. We, we've, we view the world in a 1950s way that we think is relevant to today. And therefore, they're very intelligent about that 1950s worldview. They're very smart people. And they're trying their best to make sense of the world around them but using the wrong frame of reference to interpret what they see. And so the results are, quite predictably, very poor. 
So it's not that the federal, the central bank is necessarily corrupt in the, in, you know, in a outright, you know, let's, let's, let's crash the system kind of way. They're corrupt in that they refuse to, to, to appreciate all of these signals telling them that they're doing a wrong job because they begin from the wrong paradigm. And so on August 9th, what happened was the system changed, the Eurodollar system changed, but the paradigm, the mainstream conventional paradigm never did. We're still operating on the pre-crisis paradigm, which was wrong to begin with. And so what has to happen is not only do we have to recognize the system as it was before August 9th, we have to, we have to realize what happened after August 9th and bring everybody up to speed by, by uh, you know, reinventing our worldview so that we can properly interpret uh, the framework of how things actually work in the modern age. I like to think of it as um, that we're in a box, right? And we're trying to think outside of the box. And I, like, as I said, I think we were in a paradigm shift, but that's not right. We're still in the box. And August 9th represents a crack in that box through which light is coming through. And it's our job, perhaps like Uma Thurman in uh, Kill Bill, to get through that crack, break through to that new era on the other side, that new paradigm, that new world, which you and I believe is going to be a good one, that there's a golden age, that there's a boom, there's a real surge uh, that we're going to accomplish as a society. And that's what we talked about at the end of our last discussion on August 9th. And let's just do it again. That's how you ended your article. Let's end this part of the, the show just talking about your optimism about the future. Yeah, and I think, you know, another, you know, if we're going to go back into Greek philosophers, Socrates' parable of the cave, I think, is a good one, too. Because what it says, if you're familiar with Plato's Republic, is essentially that, you know, people who are in this previous paradigm looking, you know, chained up in a cave and they can't get outside the cave. They see the outside world only through the shadows it projects on the wall of the cave. And therefore they, they believe those shadows are real and they try to interpret, you know, these shadows as something in their own frame of reference. But when they get outside of the cave, which is supposed to represent true knowledge or what Thomas Kuhn would say is a paradigm shift, you start to realize you know, why they're interpreting things as shadows on the wall and, and how that is inappropriate to describe the actual world. And so what we're saying is, if economics and especially central banks can become, can break free from those chains, get outside the cave into real knowledge of the world around it, especially where it relates to the monetary system and how it actually works. And what is the bond market really telling you? Well, you know, for the, for Jade Powell, they're nothing more than shadows on the wall of the cave. They can't really understand what the bond market signals are because they're still stuck in the cave. And once they get outside the cave and realize that they've been doing things all wrong all this time, Hopefully what that leads to is some kind of realistic reform, reasonable reform that gets to a monetary system that is stable. And once we have a stable monetary system, a stable financial system, that will then unleash what I think we both agree will be a golden age, a real economic boom, the likes of which we haven't seen in generations. Because we've had, and we're already 13 years and counting, and probably going back a little bit before then, on growth, economic growth that's been missing and economic growth that was probably... Um, you know, to characterize it as, as the Austrians do, malinvested. So we had, you know, quite a long period of you know, growth, but bad growth, and then no growth. So there's a lot of pent-up energy, if you want to put it that way, a lot of pent-up demand and a lot of pent-up supply-side issues that can be taken advantage of, innovations, things like that, that just have gone by the wayside during this, what you call silent depression. 
those things are ready to be unleashed once we get it right. And, the, and I think the key to getting it right is to get outside of the cave, to break the paradigm, to understand the world as it actually is, not as, it, not as it, they thought it existed 50, 60 years ago. Jeff, we've talked about Aristotle. You just brought up Socrates. Before we get, went on the air, we were talking about the German school of thought. Just on a personal basis, uh, can you name what your favorite philosophical work might be? It can be, it can do with economics. It doesn't have to. Just a particular text that, you, that really speaks to you. One of the books that I've always read is Plato's Republic. And I, 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 for a lot of different reasons, there's a lot to like about it and there's a lot to just shake your head about. And so it, it's, it's one of those things. I, I like those kinds of things where you can look at it and say, you know, this isn't just a manual for how we should live our life. It's, it's somebody struggling to understand the world from their own perspective. And you can see that struggle and how it's laid out and, and how that applies, especially to what you and I are doing here. Well, let us transition to your next article, which is going to involve some of what you were just saying, somebody struggling to get the answers correctly and providing some answers that seem correct and some that do not. So let's start, it's August 12th, you posted this at the Alhambra Investments blog, and it is titled, Eugene Fama's Efficient View of Stimulus Porn. Now, Jeff, it has been my goal since we started this project to make economics erogenous again. Is that what you were going for with this title, with this article? Was it ever erogenous? I'm, I'm not sure we're going to make it again. I think that would be the first time that it had ever happened. Now, I th what, what we're talking about, I, I, you know, Eugene Fama gave an uh, interview earlier this week, I believe, where he basically says this, you know, some of the things that we, we talk about all the time that we kind of take for granted, which is central banks aren't actually in the business of anything real. It's all posturing, he said, and it's really not, it's nothing more than signals and messaging. And I think what he called, uh, you know, he, he's the one who compared it to porn pornography and said it's basically entertainment, which is what I've been saying for a long time when I call monetary policy a puppet show. Uh, I'm more family friendly in the way I put it than Eugene Fama, but I think, you know, he may be not us, but he may be the first one to, to think economics is, is, or central bankers at least are sexy. Well, actually, he's not the first. I know that uh, Steve Keen often makes a the economist the the rebel economist. He often uh, brings up uh, prostitution as part of his analogy to how banks really function. I'm not going to go into it because this is a family show, but maybe in a future episode or in a late night version of this show. I'll talk to you about that late night version later, Jeff. All right, let's start with the obvious question that's on everyone's mind right now, who was Louis Bachelier? He was a guy in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, around 1900, who first started to look at markets and market prices specifically with a view toward making it more scientific, more scientific analysis to what was going on. Back then it was almost like sort of, you know, mysticism and, and you know, things like that, superstition that guided most uh, mainstream views of what was going on in the marketplace. And th that's when there was any thought about it at all. Remember, Adam Smith's invisible hand kind of ruled how people interpreted markets. And so uh, Louis Bachelier said, now I'm going to start looking, I'm going to take mathematical view, statistical view at the marketplace and see if I can't start learning something 
more, you know, more fundamental beliefs, more deeper truth about what's going on in the marketplace. And so he was the first one who really started to, to create the framework of what we call today modern finance. You know, what I was struck as I was reading your article was that Bachelier, Bachelier, oh gosh, I wish I could speak French, Louis Bachelier, his instructor was none other than another Frenchman whose name I can't pronounce, Henry Poincaré, uh, who Encyclopedia Britannica describes as, quote, a French mathematician, one of the greatest mathematicians, and a mathematical physicist at the end of the 19th century, who made a series of profound innovations in geometry, the theory and differential equations, electromagnetism, uh, topology, and the philosophy of mathematics. And the reason he's on my radar screen is because he is in a section of quotes. I try to keep uh, quotes of interesting things I read. And he is in the section that's titled Mathematics, uh, Mathemat uh, Mathematical minds that believe in uncertainty versus economists who believe in mathematical certainty. And so he's one of those people that uh, gave a number of quotes that mathematics and physics suggests uncertainty, the inability to, be, uh, to have knowledge, that we're limited to it. And yet uh, economists are pursuing trying to be a hard science like mathematics uh, and I just found that ironic that the two are moving in separate directions. Yeah, I think the best part about that, especially your quote of you know, Poincaré was you know a, was a very groundbreaking mathematician, especially in working with non-Euclidean geometry and and what happened in the 19th century overall, especially in the, phys in the science of physics, was that they began to realize that the world was not deterministic. It wasn't a, it wasn't that you could just write down a bunch of simple equations and then realize everything about those simple equations and therefore define everything with these certain set of rules that would allow you to basically describe the entire universe. In fact, what for most physicists throughout the 19th century began to realize was that, no, there was so much uncertainty. That, that even if you define simple rules, there was so much unpredictability in complex systems that the, the entire universe was not Newtonian. It was essentially a probabilistic universe. And of course, like that became, uh, went from Newtonian science into um, quantum physics. And it's ironic that economics has gone, as you pointed out, in the opposite direction. So where econo economists want to be physicists, and they want to employ all the mathematical equations, that they, they put the complex equations up on the chalkboard, make themselves sound like physicists, when in fact physics went in the complete opposite direction, which was toward a probabilistic, non-deterministic state, Whereas in econometrics, we're all supposed to believe that it's also easily explained by statistical regressions. And it's, it's a very poignant divergence that explains a lot about what we just talked about, which is why the paradigm hasn't shifted. Because economists are certain they've got it right. <laughs> yeah, thank you for putting it so eloquently. And if the audience will just bear with me, I've got to read these two quotes, which are just beautiful and brain-wrinkling. Here's one from Henry Poincaré, quote, geometry is not true. It is advantageous. Wow, amazing. Here's another one. This one's a little bit longer. Absolute space, that is to say the mark to which it would be necessary to refer the earth to know whether it really moves, has no objective existence. The two propositions, one, the earth turns round, and two, it is more convenient to suppose the earth turns round 
have the same meaning. There is nothing more in the one than the other. Mind-boggling. Amazing. Yeah, that's just, you know, it's certainty versus uncertainty, right? I mean, for us, again, what we just talked about in the previous segment, the idea that it's comfortable that we can, you know, that we believe the earth turns, therefore, whether it does or not, as long as we believe it, it's comfortable for us. We live in the bubble, you know, Euclidean geometry with all its straight lines and, and very precise movements and calculations that it, that it led people to create was a comforting thought, the idea that things were very simple and that we don't, you know, unpredictability and what would later become chaos theory in the 20th century. These things are, are very uncomfortable thoughts and uncomfortable um, intrusions upon our self-deluded bubble. Let's talk some more physics. Now, I believe it was a little bit less than a year ago that you were on the air with Keith McCullough as part of Hedgeye's uh, kind of live conference that they did, and you were one of the guests. And Keith will often reference Brownian motion on his daily macro show uh, in reference to the movement of stock prices. He's dismissive about it. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned Brownian motion in your article. What is it? Brownian motion is the idea that there's um, unpredictability in the movement of fluids. In other words, you know, we have individual molecules that make up a fluid. Well, how does a fluid, you know, has a fluid overall trying to predict how it moves? Well, is it a function of all the individual molecules or is it a function of the fluid? I mean, is there some way they interact? Can we tell how they interact? Can we tell about how the individual molecules interact? That will tell us something more about the whole. And you can see how Brownian motion appealed to Louis Bachelier when he was trying to figure out stock prices because are markets the sum of the whole? Are they the whole than the parts? I mean, how, do, how does markets actually move? Is there individual pieces of information that get traded? And, and it leads us into at least them at least, into the idea that there's an efficient market. And that's what Eugene Fama was famous for, coming up with the theory of efficient markets. Because what he said was essentially that, yes, there is a certain amount of beauty to the randomness in stock prices that, that told us that these must be efficient markets. So, Jeff, this is you, the, the subject of this article and this episode, this section, is Eugene Fama. We haven't even talked about him yet. And we're not going to just yet. We've got one more pair to talk about, one more pair of mathematicians. And uh, I encourage everyone that's listening and watching to read this article by Jeff. It was a real good one. Uh, let's talk about Paul Samuelson and Benoit Mandelbrot. You brought them up in your article. And I have to bring up Keith McCullough again because uh, Mandelbrot's 2004 book, the Misbehavior of Markets, A Fractal View of Financial Turbulence sits number one on Keith's uh, top 10 list of most important books that explains market behavior. Uh, Jeff, Paul Samuelson, Benoit Mandelbrot, how do they fit into this story about Eugene Fama? Well, they, were a couple, they wrote a couple of influential papers in the 1960s, which, eventually, which gathered a lot of empirical evidence for the debt or for the uh, empirical evidence that Eugene Fama would later use to describe his efficient market theory. And Benoit Mandelbrot, of course, is who's famous for his fractal geometry, which is trying to explain what was later called chaos theory, which is the unpredictability of complex systems. So, you know, he plays a role in, you know, how we go, you know, we're going in the wrong directions, at least in terms of economics. But in this context of finance, what him and what he and Samuelson and a couple others is like economists like uh, Paul Kuttner had done too, was they had gathered empirical evidence that said, you know, it really does seem like 
stock prices, when you when you account for you know things like earnings retention, with you know earnings growth, the, what we're supposed to believe is the basis for all stock prices, the, the the behavior of those prices does appear to be random, and therefore it led Fama to then to describe why that would be, which was his efficient market hypothesis, which is essentially that you know every bit of information that's available is in the stock market. It's it's in all of the market prices today, and if something changes tomorrow. It must be because something, some new information became available tomorrow. It can't be that there, you know, the market was wrong today because it's an efficient market. Okay, exactly. You got to the heart of the matter. Why did you raise Eugene Fama? It's because he wrote that paper about efficient markets hypothesis that markets can see deeply into the future. And you're raising him because he just did an interview, or at least the interview was just published a couple of days ago, I'm going to read a quote from that, or, uh, from that uh, interview just right now. Here, quote. This is Fama speaking. Frankly, I think this is just posturing. Actually, the central banks don't do anything real. They are issuing one form of debt to buy another form of debt. If you are an old Modigliani and Miller person, the way I am, you think that's a neutral activity. You're issuing short-term debt to buy long-term debt or vice versa. That's not something that should have any real effects. That's why I used to say that the business of central banks is like pornography. In essence, it's just entertainment and it doesn't have any real effects. Jeff, straight fire, pure fire. Yeah, he agrees with us that it's a puppet show and it really is. And I think you know one thing that we need to emphasize more and more here is that look, the modern central bank and their conception of the modern central bank is relatively new. It's a relatively new phenomenon. The idea that these are, these are you know, the wisest, best, brightest um, philosophers, stewards, whatever you want to call them, operating this technocratic ideal with the printing press and all this power at their fingertips that they can use easily, that's something that didn't come about until relatively recently. For most of the Federal Reserve's history, it was a joke. People actually, you know, it was not something that people would want to ever um, uh, uh, think of as something that was a useful tool or any way, uh, you know, some, some major kind of breakthrough or groundbreaking achievement because most of its history is a tragic history. It gets more things wrong than it ever got close to being right. So what, you know, from Fama's point of view, when he was writing his uh, efficient market hypothesis, you know, when he was going back into the marketplace and thinking about these, these mathematical equations and things like that, you know, his view at that time was not of the Federal Reserve as some mythical, powerful, great force of good. It was a joke. And so classical money theory looks at the modern Fed as, what the hell are these guys doing? They're just, they're just waving their hands around and making a big display about things. They're not actually doing things because the modern central banker believes the symbolism, mere symbolism and expectations and how people are supposed to interpret those symbols is, is equivalent or even better than actual monetary money supply uh, issues. So that first quote, it seems like Eugene Fama is shooting pure barrel fire at the Federal Reserve, uh, shots fired, as, the, as Twitter would like to say. Uh, he's punctured their ship below the waterline. It's sinking. But wait a minute. Then he comes out with another quote. And this one unravels it for me a little bit. Here's what he says, quote, the market seems pretty good. It held up even though the economy is deep in the bucket. 
This is a good example of how forward-looking the market really is. It's looking past what we are going through now, and it's saying that the future doesn't look that bad. Jeff, do we have to accept this statement because we accepted the previous one, or can we do like with Milton Friedman, where we pick some quotes as you know, and we identify them as yes, that's right, and then others dubious? Well, let's be clear. He was talking about the stock market in particular. And so what he was saying is now stocks are back at record highs. That isn't necessarily inconsistent with the fact the economy's in the toilet. What he's saying is that, again, remember, this is the efficient market guy. Therefore, the markets are never wrong. And what he's saying is, okay, yeah, it's bad today, but stocks are saying it's going to be really, really good tomorrow. Again, that, you know, we're talking about new information and how we're supposed to price all these things. But, you know, what is it really tomorrow? Is it next month? Is it next year? Is it the next decade? Because what we're really talking about is there's, if monetary policy is not really part of the equation and, and you, you found doesn't believe it is and you and I believe don't believe it is either, then what's real? <laughs> where are we supposed to believe this? You know, what, by what basis are we supposed to believe that the last 13 years are just going to end? Uh, you know, we're going to go into this brand new golden age based on what? The fact that we went into an even deeper economic contraction, that's going to be the basis for, that's going to be the springboard for the next big jump in the economy. No, and it, it, you know, but that's what Fama has to say. Look, he can see, that, as we do, that the central banks don't really matter. They're doing a bunch of you know, entertainment. I wouldn't call it pornography. I think it's, it's the best, a, a bad puppet show. You know, whatever. But anyway... You know, so if central banks don't matter, we have to explain what's going on in the stock market. And since Eugene Fama is a fish and market guy, he has to believe that the markets are looking down the road at when things are going to look good. When I say that, well, how far down the road are they looking, right? That's right. That's right. And that's what you raise in your next article, which is called Fama 2, No Inflation for Old Central Banks. Uh, you posted it on August 12th at Alhambra Investments. Jeff, is this a sequel to Cormac McCarthy's 2005 book, No Country for Old Men, or the Coen Brothers' 2007 movie of the same name, or is it to the post that you, uh, you uploaded just a few hours ago? Well, since we're talking about randomness and non-randomness, I think that No Country for Old Men probably applies the best. Though I have to admit that that was mostly accidental. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, and you start off that article, this part two of our Eugene Fama story. You start off by, by uh, drawing to our attention that the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that consumer prices for July 2020 were a roaring hellfire of inflation, the kind we haven't seen for 30 years. I, I describe it as a roaring hellfire, but it was an all-time 30-year high. Score one for central banking. True? Well, the core CPI was up, I think, 62 basis points month over month, which was, as you pointed out, the highest, I think, uh, since 1991, which was after three straight, well, it was after three straight months earlier this year where we had contractions for the first time in history, which indicated deflation. So are we getting out of deflation into deflation? And is Jay Powell responsible for it? And should we congratulate the guy for printing so much money that it's getting into consumer prices already? And the answer is obviously no, but uh, what happened was we went through a deep hole and we're starting to reopen. Things are starting to rebound and that's all that happened in the CPI. Of course, CPI went back up to where about 
it would have been had there not been a hole in the economy opened up in March, April, and May. So it wasn't necessarily congratulations, Jay Powell, so much as thank God we're reopening things again. And I'm going to bring Eugene Fama into this because in the interview he just did, he thought he talks about inflation. So uh, I want people to grab the undersides of their chair and hold on as they're about to hear this quote. Quote, so based on classic monetary theory, you don't really know what's determining inflation at this point. There is no control over the stock of what qualifies as money since reserves aren't really money anymore because they're paying interest. And we'll come back to that. That means you can't control the currency supply. In other words, inflation is totally out of the control of central banks. Jeff, I'm dizzy. I'm going to lay down. You talk for a while. <laughs> well, he's getting at the right answers, the right conclusion for the, using the wrong frame of reference to get there. The, what he's basically saying is that IOER turned bank reserve from currency into debt, and therefore the Fed is simply doing a maturity transformation or asset swap by buying longer dated debt and issuing uh, these, these interest-paying bank reserves, which are simply a form of shorter dated debt. And that's as, as in classical money theory, that's a neutral uh, action because you're just swapping maturity of one debt form for another debt form. You're not actually increasing the level of currency. Now, that's something that we talk about all the time. Bank reserves are essentially inert form of a liquid asset, not really currency itself. So he's looking at the same thing we're looking at and trying to interpret what he's seeing, which is the central bank irrelevance and bank reserves not functioning as money, under his previous paradigm, his previous worldview, classic money theory, where you know bank reserves are supposed to be money if they don't pay interest. What we say is that, no, that's irrelevant. The bank-centered euro-dollar system uses other forms of money, of which bank reserves were never one of them. And so the level of bank reserves, whether it pays interest or not, is irrelevant to the monetary system. And sentimental effects aside, but in technical, in technical matters, it's irrelevant. So we come to the same conclusion as Eugene Fama, but using very different uh, worldview and very different forms of interpretation frameworks to do so. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, fascinating that he used, references interest on excess reserves and how he has to involve that. I mean... For a while, they weren't paying interest on excess reserves. Is that, is that right, Jeff? Early on in 2008, or, well, towards the end of 2008, for a while, they weren't paying, right? And so at, if they had theoretically continued not paying interest on excess reserves, would he then be forced to say that it was money and in, that they were in charge of inflation? Well, yeah, and I think it's a, problem, it's a puzzle that a lot of economists have struggled with because they see all these bank reserves and realize that it's, not, it's, it's supposed to be money printing. Why isn't it being money printing? And so they're kind of reverse engineering why bank reserves have not led to all of the things that money printing is supposed to bring about. And what they've settled upon, a lot of them have settled on, is it must be interest on reserves, which is a ridiculous proposition too because you're going to believe that you know, for most of the history, paying, what, 25 basis points? is the reason banks won't go out and lend for four or 5% in the marketplace? No, it's, it's what that happened was they went back and said, well, something must've changed because we believe bank reserves are money. Classic money theory posits that bank reserves are a form of currency. The Fed printed a lot of new currency, but it didn't lead to the effects of printed currency. Therefore, it must've been interest on reserves that changed the nature of bank reserves. And that's really the point. 
That's the point that we make a lot in Eurodollar University is that no, bank reserves had, didn't change in 2008. They had changed a very long time before then by a, evolution in money in the previous decades that just went unrecognized under the previous paradigm. And so, yeah, they come to the same conclusion that we've already come to, but doing it for different reasons because they don't realize that bank reserves and the monetary system isn't what classic money theory actually believes it to be. Being stuck in your paradigm and unable to break out of it and unable to see uh, the world in a different lens. That's the problem. Sometimes I worry that we may fall into it. So I have to, you know, we have to keep on our toes too, Jeff, to keep our eyes open and see if there's any disconfirming evidence of our theory. Before we well, end, feel. that's, yeah, that's really one good reason why we bring up Eugene Fama here, because he's, he look, he's looking at the same things that we're looking at. And in a lot of ways, he's coming to the same conclusions we are. He's saying, look, as long as we stick to the evidence, as long as we're honest about it, the issue isn't the evidence or being honest. It's in how we interpret what the, what the evidence is saying. Mm -hmm. So he's interpreting it under his paradigm. We're interpreting under ours. But the evidence is there. And as long as we remain faithful to that evidence, which is central banks are, you know, nothing more than pornographic entertainment, puppet show, however you want to characterize it. They're not monetary agents. It's not really a bank. Therefore, as long as we remain faithful to the evidence that continues to show that, you know, I think we'll, we'll be okay. We won't, we'll, you know, we'll always run the risk of our own biases and confirmation bias being one of the big things we have to be always be aware of. But so long as we're evidence-based and, and try to continue to, 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 to continue our analysis and interpretation by using evidence and, and being honest about it, I think we'll be okay. And that's really what, you know, I think is, is broken down economics is it's gotten so rigid, so ideologically, you know, put into its own box it refuses all of the evidence that's, that keeps saying, look, you've got it wrong. You need to change. And so instead, IOER is a perfect example. Bank reserves have shown, the history for the last 13 years has shown, bank reserves are not money printing. So instead of going back and blaming IOER, maybe we need to go back and reinterpret the entire monetary paradigm. Yeah, it's fruitless to argue uh, religious theology, uh, to argue on those points, on theology. And that's what economics has become. It's not so much a science or a philosophy, but it's a religion in certain circumstances. And one of those is the efficient market hypothesis when applied to stocks. This is the last issue I want to talk about with respect to this article. We haven't touched on it. You did talk about how Eugene Fama is saying that the stock market is up because it's looking so far deeply into the future, but you maintain no, it's because central banks are good at press relations, which is what Milton Friedman uh, said. Do you, do you want to say anything uh, about that aspect of your article? Yeah, I think, you know, we do have to explain where stocks are coming from. Why, how do they fit into our worldview? And we, our worldview is that, you know, QE is not money printing. Bank reserves are not effective money. Therefore, well, what is driving the stock market? And if you know anything about the financial services industry and how everybody is trained within it, you understand that the idea that you don't fight the Fed, the Greenspan put, all of these things, you know, these modern myths that have come about in the last, you know, 30, 40 years are deeply ingrained in the financial services industry. And so people are conditioned to believe that the Fed is an all-powerful, omniscient engine. And if it says it's going to stimulate the economy, you better buy in advance of that stimulation or you're going to be left behind. And then it becomes simply the madness of crowds because even if you don't believe that, 
because share prices are rising, you got to buy too because share prices are rising. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, which, by the way, is the entire point of monetary policy. It's supposed to make everything from inflation expectations to the stock market to consumer spending and business investment into a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is what, by the way, I mean, that's what Eugene Fama was essentially lamenting, that, that central banks don't do anything real. They try to get everybody to do these things they want the economy to do on their behalf. And so once you realize that, and the financial media being the primary tool for the central bank to operate on this, this type of, of system, this type of expectations arrangement, that's really what's in the monetary toolkit. It's not a printing press. There's no currency in it. It's a bunch of stories that will get written, that everybody knows will get written, to basically parrot whatever any central bank says. It doesn't matter how many times you do QE, it's always the most powerful thing ever done. Well, Jeff, I have to admit that I had sort of misunderstood what this section of our uh, show was going to be about. I thought it was going to be about making economics erogenous again, and that's why I brought that book out. But I'm going to leave that for another show and I'm just going to tell the audience that if you're interested in reading more of Jeff's work, you can find it at Alhambra Investments, but also at Real Clear Markets, which is where we turn to next. Jeff, today's August 14th. You have an essay posted at Real Clear Markets today, August 14th. Uh, it's called Low Rates Aren't a Central Bank Providing Accommodation. Why did you want to talk about this essay today on the show? It's a persistent theme, especially in this day and age. You know, what are low interest rates telling us? And if you go back in your economics training, any economics school, any, well, there, any, there aren't any other kinds of economic classes out there, low rates are stimulus. You're told that from the very beginning. Ben Bernanke or whoever, Jay Powell, Christine, whoever the, whoever the central banker is, they lower rates, that stimulus. So whenever you see a low interest rate, that's a good thing. That's what we're taught and that's what we're supposed to believe. And it's just not true. Well, low rates, stimulus was a topic of discussion with Mr. Ben Bernanke, then Federal Reserve Chairman, on July 17th, 2012. Jeff, where was he? Who was he talking to? What question was he answering? Well, he was, it was before Congress uh, doing his semi-annual Humphrey Hawkins testimony. And 2012 was a, a pretty unique year because it was four years, three and a half, four years away from the financial crisis. And a lot of people who were paying attention, closer attention, were wondering where the hell the recovery was. I mean, that's a lot of time for without recovery. And one congressman in particular, Jeb Henserling, was essentially, hey, we did the greatest monetary and quote uh, monetary and fiscal stimulus quote unquote stimulus ever conceived in American history supposedly. Um, where's the recovery? And he wanted Ben Bernanke to answer that, especially given the context of the middle of 2012, which was okay. We've done two QEs, we've had an operation twist, and now it looks like the U.S. economy is slowing down even more. So there was talk throughout the middle of that uh, that year of a QE3. And he was kind of saying like, look, you know, Ben, Ben, what the hell here? Why are we continuing to do QE? Where's the recovery? What's going on? Why are we not getting the results that you keep promising us? What did Ben, Federal Reserve Chairman Bernanke, respond? What did he say? 
Well, he responded the way they always respond, which was number one, try to try to avoid any kind of specific answer. But Henseling was good because he had statistics in front, unassailable statistics that said, look, this is the slowest, worst recovery in the post-war history, yet we've thrown everything imaginable at it. And by the way, Ben, you promised us all these good results, you even wrote, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about it. So where is everything? And what, what Bernanke eventually said, anything specific that he said was, well, you know, it was really bad in 2008 and 2009. So without us, it probably would have been worse. And they always fall back on this, this counterfactual that can never be proved that we saved a lot of jobs. You can't see the growth, but it would have been worse if we hadn't done what he had done, which is not at all what quantitative easing is supposed to produce. You're not supposed to say, well, it's bad, but it would have been worse. It was supposed to lead to an actual recovery. And here it was in 2012, and now there was a no recovery. Now it looked like the U.S. economy and the global economy in particular was going to trip up yet again, which it did. Jeff, I believe he said, Bernanke then said, that he had further room to lower rates and offer more stimulus. And then, so you asked the question yourself that I'm going to pose right back to you. To begin with, what do we mean when we say interest rates are low? Short-term rates, long-term, risk-free, risky, bonds, loans, monetary equivalents? Yeah, and I think it gets back into the myth that we're all talking. I mean, when we say interest rates are low, we kind of think that there's one interest rate. And it's the interest rate where we're led to believe that the interest rate, the only one that matters, is what the Federal Reserve interest rate, or the federal funds target rate, is going to be. And that's not true. We live in a very complex system, very complex financial system, which serves a very, very complex global economy. And there are many different interest rates. And a lot of times the interest rates they don't necessarily fit together the way we're supposed to believe they fit together. Mainstream economic theory, which goes back to Alan Greenspan and even before, and in a lot of ways taken from Eugene Fama's work, is that the Fed sets one short-term interest rate, which then infl high, heavily influences the rest of the risk-free interest rates, which are the U.S. Treasury curve. So the Fed sets the short end of the U.S. Treasury curve. The rest of the yield curve just kind of follows in place. As Alan Greenspan said at one point, it's a series of one-year forwards. And therefore, the rest of the credit markets simply follow the lead of the entire risk, riskless yield curve. And it's all a simple process, a predictable process, where the Fed lowers one rate and everything else just kind of falls into place. Again, what you were saying before about Henry Poincaré, you know, the idea that physicists were going into uncertainty where economics is going into certainty. And that's really the idea that goes behind this interest rate theory is that it's all really so simple. The Fed sets one rate and everything just falls right into place. But when you actually examine these things, which you're not supposed to do, by the way, the real uh, expectations manager theory believes that, hey, just leave this stuff to Ben Bernanke. He knows what he's talking about. You don't need to think about these things because the central bankers have got it all covered. But when you actually do think about these things, what you find is the theory doesn't, doesn't survive even the slightest bit of scrutiny. Jeff, uh, August 13th was my birthday, and I'm at a certain age now where I'm worried that I'm a doddering old man and that my mental faculties have been furloughed, and my worst, my worst fears were confirmed yesterday when I read an article by Bloomberg, and it left me thoroughly confused, and I'm going to read it out to you here. Hopefully, you can help me. Quote, unprecedented government stimulus has allowed more companies to borrow at lower rates than ever before. Yet, amid the credit boom, smaller firms that power America's economic engine are often being shut out, hamstringing their recovery just 
as it begins. Uh, Jeff, there are some contradictions in that quote that are leaving me grasping for purchase. Am I an old man? I don't think you're an old man. I think it's just that the, uh, again, we're to what we're talking about. The paradigm hasn't shifted. The frame of reference, the worldview that we're interpreting these signals has not changed enough that we can make sense of what this is actually saying. You're right, Emil. That is a very big contradiction because how can it be a credit boom where only part of the economy actually participates in it? And the reason is because we're taught to, to judge a credit boom by the interest rate. The fact that and then attribute the interest rate to central bank policy. So that, that article is all sorts of confused, thinking that lower interest rates are a credit boom, and therefore wondering how it can be a credit boom if only a small part of the credit markets are actually participating within it. When in fact, what's really going on is something you and I talked about a few shows ago when we talked about low interest rates in the 1930s, that tight money, liquidity preferences, all these things show you that low, uh, low interest rates are not a good thing. And the reason they're not a good thing is because so often, like we're seeing now, it describes a situation where those low rates only apply to fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer parts of the credit markets. And so, you know, big companies can borrow all they want. In fact, there's overwhelming demand for, you know, Apple bonds, for example. They just, they just floated a huge issue lately that was way oversubscribed because Apple can borrow all at once. That's not the problem. And so the, the, the interest rate that you see get published, the interest rate that goes into all these various market interest rate indexes goes down and down based on that liquidity preference. But what you don't see is what the Bloomberg article was trying to, 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 to make sense of, which is at the, the Apple is borrowing where nobody else can. Smaller firms, less credit worthy firms, they can't get any funding at all. So the published interest rate falls as a liquidity preference for li liquid instruments where the more liquid, less credit-worthy uh, obligers and potential borrowers, they get nothing. So the low interest rate, according to mainstream theory, is almost a paradox. And then that's exactly what you just read in the Bloomberg article. It almost sounds that way. We've got this credit boom that only applies to a few, par a few people. Right, exactly. So credit boom, powering America's economic injury, engine, recovery, unprecedented, stimulus, and then here's another quote. Banks are tightening conditions on loans to smaller firms at a pace not seen since the financial crisis. While many direct lenders that have traditionally focused on the middle market are pulling back or turning to bigger deals instead. And Jeff, as you're saying, a lot of these deals are going to the bigger companies. But then you also say, hold on, wait a minute. It's not that then these bigger companies are going to go into the economy and create economic activity. They're building a moat around their corporate castle of liquidity to pro protect themselves. They're drawing up the drawbridge and they've got archers posted at the uh, embrasures. It's for protection they're drawing this credit down, not for economic activity. Yeah, that's not a boom either, right? I mean, it's the opposite. You know, the fact that big companies are borrowing hand over fist because they can, not because they need to, is a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's not the result of stimulus. It's not stimulative at all. In fact, it's the opposite. It's Again, it's liquidity preferences being expressed in a way that doesn't make sense to the prior paradigm where you put where you attribute everything to a central bank and then attribute low rates to stimulus. What you're seeing is anti-stimulus, the very opposite of stimulus. So low rates are not the Fed successfully achieving a credit boom. 
it's the Fed failing to get the, the, the markets moving again, such that you have a broad-based, economically-based advance, or what we call a recovery. And it's not just this year that we see this problem. It's everything going back to August 9th, 2007, which is why we pay attention to August 9th every year, because even though it's 13 years in the past, we're still seeing these same problems crop up because the paradigm has never shifted. The system shifted. Mainstream and conventional understanding of the system hasn't, and it needs to catch up before it gets, you know, before we keep continuing to go, go down this wrong road. And one of the ways that we might be able to shift the system is if we, quote, fire them all now. And that's a catchphrase that you use to end this article. And you use it often enough in your writing. You're referring, of course, to central bankers. And it made me uh, think of uh, Hugh Hendry's recent piece. And Hugh Hendry is the uh, Scottish investment philosopher. Uh, and he wrote that uh, the Federal Reserve would be better served with Joe Rogan at its helm. And Joe Rogan is the famous <laughs> podcaster, yeah. entrepreneur, uh, mixed martial arts commentator and comedian. And, uh, you know, he's salt of the earth man. And it made me think of that uh, famous quote by uh, William F. Buckley Jr. In the 1950s or 1960s, he said that he would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than the 2,000 people of the Harvard faculty. So Jeff, when you say that you wanna fire them all, are you saying that you would rather have the institution guided by maybe more of the uh, regular, regular Joes, the generalists, not the experts? Once they're fired, who's going in to take their place? Well, number one, I think we've given them enough, enough of a chance, right? I mean. 13 years is long enough to say, if, if you're going to do it, if you're going to learn, if you're going to start being honest and, and looking at the evidence, you probably would have done it before today. And now we're even in a worse shape than we were, you know, last year or the year before, which was really bad to begin with. So now things have gotten worse. Are we going to sit here and wait for these people to have some kind of epiphany? And it, are we to expect that to happen? No, I don't think we would. And I th think you're right. I mean, most, most of what has happened, and we talked about this before, you know, economics went into this paradigm of certainty where econometrics and creating equations about how everything works has been the overriding goal at the expense of what Ronald Coase once said was competency in economics. So econ economists have become very good at mathematics and very bad at economy. And therefore, you know, if we're going to do something different, why not a Joe Rogan? Why not some salt of the earth, somebody who's going to be honest and stop paying attention to the, you know, their own mathematical creations that they treat like their children and therefore their loyalty is to their econometrics not to the how the economy works all we need is somebody who's honest enough to say look this is how things are this is how things have developed hey maybe we'll try a quantitative easing and if it doesn't work you don't do it again right you don't keep repeating something that doesn't work and so it's really a matter of we need to shake up the system and get some kind of honest scientific approach in there so that we can at least understand this, the reality that we live in. And therefore, from there, once we understand the, the, the way the things actually work, we can begin to piece together realistic reform and solutions. But it, you know, we've, given, we've given these people a chance. They've had 13 years. It, it's obvious they're not gonna do anything other than the same things over and over again. Nothing is going to change. So therefore, why should we expect anything to change if we don't change them? Jeff, great show. Loved it. 
Dear audience, if you'd like to learn more, check out the comments section below this video or the notes section of your YouTube provider, and uh, you'll be able to see where Jeff writes, where he's on social media, where I'm on social media, where you can contact us, post your questions and comments. I always read all the questions and all the comments. I respond to a reasonable number of them within my capacity. I wish I could do more, but I do read them all, and they do help steer the show. We love your participation, dear audience. Jeff, can't wait to do it again next week. Yeah, happy birthday, Emil. One year closer to retirement.